Christos Nesti. For those who haven't done Easter with us before, this is the uh, traditional uh, early church greeting in Greek, um, and we do it, so I'm going to do it again for, for all of you who haven't done this before. Christos Nesti. Christ is risen. Join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your death, for your resurrection, for becoming king, for saving us, for bringing us to new life. Lord, as we, we meditate on your word, on what this day means, we pray that you would speak um, to us this morning. In your name, amen. I've titled this morning's sermon, the greatest of all time sacrifice. In the common um, phrase now, greatest of all time has become, become uh, turned into a uh, uh, shrunk to goat. So if you talk about a sports player, the, they're the goat if they're the greatest of all time in their sport. So today I'm going to be talking about the goat sacrifice. If you have been in church long, in the way I have. I've grown up in church. You get pretty familiar with weird things. And you say them, and you just get to the point where you're sort of used to them. You don't really stop and think, like, that's a weird thing to say. So for instance, we're going to do communion at the end of the sermon. And if you really think about communion, um, when Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, he makes a couple statements that just seem a little surprising. For instance, some get sick and die from doing this in an unworthy manner. You just stop and think. He doesn't give you like sort of any justification for that. You know, was he running a, an experiment? You seem, yeah, okay, okay, unworthy. I'm going to check in with you a couple weeks, make sure, you know, how are you doing? Worthy, okay, how are we checking? Yeah, yep, yep, okay. So, you know, we're not really given any qualifications for that. We're just told that that's true. So we stop and just think about that, and, and we just so become so familiar with these things, we don't really even stop and think, well, what, what does that mean, or where did we come up with this? For instance, Jesus also says, He's going, that we should drink his blood. Now, if you read the Old Testament, that's an extremely uncommon thing, right? It doesn't happen. You're not supposed to do it. You're supposed to kill the animals in such a way that you can drain the blood. You're not supposed to use the blood for anything. You're supposed to dump it out, you know, it, it, on the ground if you're not for anything else. Like, it's never to be drunk. And so even, for instance, in John 6, Jesus is talking and says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And so it says, when the disciples, when many of the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? We get so familiar with these things, we forget how weird and strange they are. And so in the same way, the disciples are like, this is really problematic. Peter actually, a couple of verses down says, I don't understand it, but you have the words of life, so I'm sticking with you even though I have no idea what you just said, and it feels really, really weird. And so what I want to meditate today on is this idea, which is what is the function of drinking Christ's blood? Why are we called to do it? Why are we invited into this thing? We will, just sort of like as Pentecost, look at one of the facets of such things. In the same way, we'll look at one of the facets of what it means for Christ to die and rise again. We will not look at all the facets. We will look at one, specifically one facet of the thing. And so the proof text we'll be using for this morning is pretty much John. We're going to use Leviticus, surprise, and John. Um, 
And so with that being said, John starts off his gospel saying, in the beginning was the word. And that reminds us of another story, the first story. And so we're like, oh, John is maybe talking about some type of creation event, maybe a new creation event. The word was there at the beginning speaking, and so here in the same way. And so this is, this is John sort of announcing, this is where he's headed with his story. It's a new creation event. You get down to Jesus, and he's going to be, he's going to be baptized. And John, the baptizer, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in John 1.29. If we stop and really think about that for a second, and we're familiar with the law, which I know all of you love at this point because I've worn off on you so much, that you're all as excited about it as I am, and it's in your top five books. There is no law, there is no spot where the lamb takes away the sins of the world. There's no lamb that takes away sins. It just doesn't happen. That's not what the lambs do. So what gives? What are we supposed to do with this? Why in the world would John the baptizer make a statement like that when it's contrary to the other things that have been going on? So what John, the author of John, is going to put forward for us is the idea that Jesus is both the Passover lamb who brings us back from exile from the garden, and he's the two goats of the Day of Atonement who make us fit to dwell in God's presence. And those two have to happen together. You can't go back from exile if you're not fit to be in that place. And so both these things have to happen and function in such a way to even allow for this to be true. So we're going to meditate on the Day of Atonement this morning. And so to do that, we're going to start in Leviticus 10. And Leviticus 10 is, is familiar to all of us. Um, we just heard about it a couple weeks ago when we talked, um, my father talked about uh, death by holiness. Leviticus 8, we get the dedication of the priests. Leviticus 9, we get the actual first time Aaron's really making a, an offering. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu approach God in the wrong way, and they die. And then the weirdest thing happens. The story stops, and you get chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, which tell you nothing about it. But all of a sudden, in 16, it picks up the story. And you're like... Boy, these guys feel like, squirrel! Huh? Got distracted. Who knows what's going on? I can't seem to keep track of what I'm talking about, so I wrote on something else, and then I came back to this thing. Okay, that's probably not an accurate description of what's going on. I find for myself, if I'm reading through passages and two things seem to make no sense with each other, I have a couple options. One is I can say the biblical authors got distracted. Two is, I need to be a better reader. That the Spirit didn't just guide these things to be arbitrarily put together, that there's a reason that they go in the way that they do, and that I need to be meditating more on the thing to understand why they're there in that order. So, for instance, now, if we look at those chapters that are in between, we get Leviticus 11, talking about clean and unclean animals. Chapter 12 is about uncleanness caused by childbirth. Leviticus 13 and 14 is about biblical leprosy, not the flesh-eating disease, but something else entirely. Leviticus 15 is about bodily discharges. So all of these are about uncleanness. And all of them 
are this uncleanness that is caused by association with death. And that's easy to see in, say, for instance, like Leviticus 15. The whole point is, is you're to keep the fluids that keep you alive inside of you. If you're getting them outside of you, you're being associated with death. And so it makes you unclean. And so you want to keep them inside of you. And you can see that in Leviticus 12. We've looked last year at one point at Leviticus 13 and 14 and what that sort of actually has to do with. And then with clean and unclean animals, there's a lot there. We just want to unpack that one today. So the end of Leviticus 15 closes with this statement. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And so the idea isn't that just these things are unclean, but in the same way Nadab and Abihu approach God in the wrong way, you have to be careful about how you approach God. If you approach him in the wrong way, it's dangerous. So if you look at just the overall layout of what the tabernacle is communicating in visual space. And Leviticus, I love Leviticus because Leviticus is, is embodied theology. It doesn't come out explicitly and tell you what you should be thinking, but by meditating it and then living in it, you are actually learning theology. And that's a very different way of us talking about things than we're just commonly used to. The tabernacle, uh, next slide for me, uh, Andrew, yeah. So the, the tabernacle has basically this idea, which is if you start at the very, very outside, the nations are out there. They are profane, they are unclean. And so as you're, you're moving inwards, you have to get more clean, more holy as you move inwards. So you move into the camp, you have to be clean. If you want to go into the holy place, you have to be more than that. You have to be actually set aside and dedicated in a special way. So each time you approach God, you have to get to another level of preparation to even approach him. And that teaches us something about what the significance of approaching God is like. These these actions are not just arbitrary, but are teaching theology. A quote from Michael Heiser, uncleanness was not about morality, but rather about association with loss of life and the incompatibility of what that means with God's perfection. Even though the logic is simple, it feels foreign to our modern minds. Loss of blood and sexual fluids were perceived as the loss of that which created and sustained life. God was not to be associated with the loss of life, but rather with being the giver of life. Requiring purification after the loss of such fluids was, not, was a reminder of God's nature. Similar purification was required after being made unclean by contact with the dead. So just to sort of lay the groundwork here, if you're associated with death, you can't come close to God because God is the God of life. And so Leviticus is just teaching us through rituals this idea but if you go to the New Testament, you realize that, that the way they often talk is that sin and death are these things that go hand in hand. They play together. And so in the same way, God is, God is the God of life and of purity, obedience. And so the tabernacle in the middle of the camp has the problem, which is it's surrounded by sinful people. And so the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp. And so when the people sin, they pollute the tabernacle. God's house is polluted. And since he is a holy God, he can't live in a polluted house. And so every time the people sin, they're basically graffitiing God's house. God lives in the middle and they're constantly doing things to it. How do you deal with that? And that's what the sin offerings are for. 
You'll notice when we read about what the sin offerings do, the blood is taken and it's sprinkled on different aspects of the tabernacle. If you're just an average person, it only gets sprinkled on the things outside of the holy place. If you're the priest and you sin, you've got to go even farther in because you're contaminating farther in to the place. And so this is, this is fundamental to the understanding. Sin offerings, in this case, don't deal truly with taking away the sin. All it does is with the pollution of what you're doing, you're damaging God's house. And he lives there, and you don't want him to leave. Because that's the options, right? He's laid out for us in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. is like you can follow these rules, you can be obedient, you can care about these things, or I'll send you out, or I will leave. Those are the two choices. So the sanctuary is under constant threat of impurity from both the priesthood and all the people of the camp, which brings us to the Day of Atonement. It's the one day of the year where the priest can go into the most holy place. And so when we think about that, what we need to understand is sort of the steps that go into that process. And I'm going to focus specifically on the ones that have to do with what John is going to tell us about how Jesus functions. And the reason is, is the, the high priest every year has to offer um, a sacrifice before he even does this portion for his sins. Jesus doesn't sin. He doesn't have to do that portion. So we're not going to pay attention to it. So from here, then what happens is, is we, get, we get a couple things. The first one we get is, is that there are two goats selected. And then a lots are chosen and one is selected for another, one thing and one is selected for another. And we'll look at that. The, pr- the, the priest, all year round, the high priest, wears garments of glory. These fancy, really nice... Can you go back, please? Yeah, just stay on that one for a little bit. The garments of glory. And he takes those off specifically on this day. And he puts on just linen garments. He doesn't get to be distinguished from anyone else. He's exactly the same. There's no um, extra level of special for him. He's exactly the same. He approaches God with no extra authority at that, that, this one. The goat that is selected for God is killed and the blood of it is collected. That's, that's the functional need of what that one's for. The rest of it, we're not really told what it's for. So we collect the blood and then we take that blood and we go in and we sprinkle it onto the cover of the tabernacle or of the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God, God's glory dwells above that, right? I mean, that's the whole point is this is where God's glory dwells. And so once a year, we have to deal with the fact that the contamination of sin is so bad that the only thing you can do is to clean it because the people are constantly, constantly contaminating God's presence with sin. And so you have to deal with that. And so life is in the blood, and life is the, alter- the, the antithesis of death, right? And so it's the thing that deals with it. Okay, so then we have a, a fifth goat, the, the, sort of the fifth step, okay? We have this other goat, and the, the priest lays his hands on him and then speaks over this goat all the sins of the people for the whole year. Now, he's probably not like Santa, and keeping track of a list, right? The idea is, is there's just probably a general list. We just sort of speak over it all year long. And so we, we do this, and then there's an individual who actually leads this goat out into the wilderness. This goat is so contaminated that you can, you can go in, like you as an Israelite could go into the wilderness and come back and you don't have to do anything. This person, when they take the goat out, this goat is so contaminated, you can't come back into the camp until you wash. Like, it's, it's dirty, 
it's contaminated by the sin. And so just by being associated with that, you have to wash before you can come back into the, into the camp. Once this whole step is done, the priest, the high priest, goes back into the holy place. He takes off the linen garments, and he puts back on his garments of glory. And then from there, he offers an ascent offering. Sometimes it will be translated in your Bible's burnt offering, but that's fundamentally saying this is what it, they're doing to it. The word means ascent. They're offering an ascent offering. Okay, so let's go back and just sort of look at what these goats do. The first goat. The first goat, the whole point, as we sort of talked about, is the idea that the goat deals with the contamination of sin. The taint of sin in the tabernacle has to be dealt with. And so it's dealt with with the blood. Now, the second goat seems really weird because you're like, what are we doing with this goat? We're laying sins on it. We're sending it away. That seems so foreign to our ideas. Um, there are uh, writings from the Hittites that we have um, where they actually have a plague and they actually have an individual and they basically say like, you're going to take the plague and you're, we're sending you out into the wilderness. We're, you're to take away the plague with you. We're actually from, more familiar with this. You remember the story of the ark and the Philistines take it? And you get the god Dagon who falls down and his hands fell, you know, break off and his head falls off. And then the people get tumors and there's mice. And so they finally are like, get rid of this thing. And the whole point is, is they're saying like, take this, this stuff. We don't want it. Get it out of here. No, no, I am not suggesting that at the beginning of the pandemic, we should have had like a lottery. Picked an individual, stuck him in a rowboat and sort of kicked him off towards China. Like, that's not what I'm suggesting, okay? I'm just trying to like, Lay the framework here, okay? So we're actually familiar with this. This is just how the Bible's trying to tell us, okay? It's, it's showing us that what's happening is, is that we are sending this thing away. Now, there's debate over whether or not we're just sending it away arbitrarily or we're sending it back as sort of like return to sender. I believe it's more of a return to sender. Here's the sin. It's not part of God and it's not part of God's people. Take it back, Okay? So another quote from Michael Heiser here. God is the one who actually, not the high priest, who brings about the purging and accepting of the ritual. The high priest comes directly to the throne of God for God's decision. It is the seat throne of God. The high priest takes off all forms of status and representing the the people goes into the very throne of the king and hopes that the king accepts so that everything can be restored to a pristine spiritual condition. The people are purged of their sin, not because the blood is applied to them, but because God the king accepts the sacrifice. In the ritual, the blood sanctifies the holy space and the sins are carried away. I'm going to read that last one, last verse for, or that last sentence for you. In the ritual, the blood sanctifies the holy space and the sins are carried away. So when we start to talk about what does Christ's blood do for us, in the ritual, the blood sanctifies the holy space and the sins are carried away. So we're going to go back to John here and look at how John lays this all out. And, you know, if we read, if, say, if you were to read Hebrews or, you know, 1 John or things like that, they all come to the same conclusion. They say Jesus is a, the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest. They don't potentially even offer a whole lot of justification for that. They just sort of say, here's, it's true. This is the thing. It happened. It's real. What the four Gospels 
try to do is to tell us in story form these things. They stop and they say, okay, here, let me show you how Christ is this thing. He's the Passover lamb. He's the day of atonement and of so many other things. And they're showing us in story form these things so that when you then read Hebrews or you read 1 John or things like that, you just go, oh, sure, I saw how John or Luke or Matthew were doing this. Now, at least for me, I find I'm not familiar enough with my Old Testament to like just pick up on these things. I have to spend a lot of time thinking about it and looking at a lot of different writings to be able to make sense of this. So I'm going to sort of just show you what's, what, what's going on here, and hopefully it'll, it will, uh, it'll click and make sense for you all. Um, but one, so I, what I want to look at here is John 11, 49 to 52. Right in this portion, John tells us way before we even get to Jesus' crucifixion, he gives us a hint, a taste of where we're headed. In the same way at the very beginning, we get this. John keeps hinting at going, hey, I want you to see where we're headed. I want you to see where we're headed. So John eleven forty nine to 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that, for you that one man should die for the people, not the, that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so this is, this is John saying like, hey, I want you to see this, okay? I want you to see that this is where we're headed. There's gonna be one who does this. He's bringing this all about. And Caiaphas says this stuff, and then John, the author, hops in and says, let me tell you how he's, he's speaking prophetically. He doesn't realize it, but this is what he's doing. So when we get to chapter 18 in John, we're actually told about Ca- we're men- Caiaphas is mentioned again, and John says, just in case you don't remember, let me remind you of what Caiaphas said. He's like, track with me here. Here we go. Here's what we're doing. So then right after that, then we get, we get this, this section where we see Jesus and Barabbas in John 18, 38b to 40. After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So we get this tension, this choice between Barabbas or Jesus that starts to remind us a little bit of the day of atonement. And so I want to stop here and just think about this for a second because I think what happens is, is when, we, when we talk about the law, when we talk about the law, the law feels like what it is, is it's, it's just sacrifices and rituals. That's all it is. But if you go read Paul, he doesn't talk about it that way. He says, when you read the law and it says that you shouldn't muzzle your ox, which you should be thinking is that when somebody is doing work, that you should compensate them appropriately. When Peter has the vision on the, the top of the, and he, the sheet is lowered, right? It's unclean animals and clean animals. But the application is people. The law was never specifically about animals. It's about people. And so, for instance, if you consider, you, know, you, you might, it, it's easy to say, well, it just, um, plenty will write about it and sort of go, these laws just sort of pop out of nowhere. But that misses the point. The Day of Atonement doesn't just pop out of nowhere. 
Consider the very first story of two brothers. The outcome of that story, Cain and Abel. One dies and one goes away. It starts to sound a little bit like the Day of Atonement. And if you start to track these things through, the whole point is, is the law isn't just something that just pops out of nowhere. You're actually replaying the story of Israel as you follow through these rituals and you're meditating on the places where we failed and how we need to do better. And so that's what the story is about. And so then we see, get to Jesus, and Jesus is all of a sudden going to show us what the true version of the story was supposed to look like. And so we come back to this, and we see that John now shows us Jesus is, is chosen as the one who is going to be sacrificed. And the robber is the one who's set free. So if we continue on to John 19, 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That seems like a pretty innocuous verse. But the word woven in this verse is only used one place in the entire New Testament, here. The only time it's used in the Old Testament when talking about clothing is for the high priest. And the high priest has also said that it is to be made in such a way that the garment can't be torn. All reminiscent of this verse, okay? So John is, is like making a nod, if you will, to the idea that Jesus is taking off his high priestly garments. He's taking off his high priestly garments because he's about to follow through. He's about to go through the day of atonement. And so he will be both the goats and the high priest, and we know that because if we read Hebrews, that's what it tells us. But John is telling us this in story form. He's saying, here, let me show you how this is what's happening. And so then between sort of that, this 1923 and 25 to 7, um, we get a whole section where John really zooms in and shows us how Jesus is the Passover lamb. I'm not going to focus on that today. That could be for another day. So we're just going to set that section aside. So Jesus, John zooms in on that. But then we come back to John 20, 5 to 7, which Trisha, Trisha read for us earlier. And it says, And stooping low, he saw that the linen claws were lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen claws lying there and the face cloth, which had been put on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen claws, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, a couple of things. Anytime you read something like this, the biblical authors are very sparse for details. So when they just keep saying the same word over and over again, you should sort of go, what's the deal with that? And so all of a sudden, in, in a couple of verses, he's like, linen, 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 linen. Linen. If you didn't get it, linen. <laughs> so if we're tracking this Day of Atonement idea, the high priest, when he's finished, takes off his linen garments. In the holy place. Now, this word linen, again, is used in this verse. And one time in Luke, when Luke is doing exactly the same thing, he's driving this point home about the Day of Atonement. Outside of there, in the Old Testament, 95% of the time or more, linen is used to describe the priest's garments and nothing else, basically. That's the whole point. Is, is, so John's like, hey, do you see this? Now, this may seem like a stretch, okay? So for Matt, imagine for me, say, say that this tomb here is the holy place and the priest just took off his garments in there if you were to put your hand on there and look inside what might you see 
If it's a holy place, really in there, what should you see in there? The mercy seat. Okay? Anything else? The cherubim, okay, right? So you're see, the, seeing the, these things. So you're, you're looking for that, okay? So, so now, now imagine for me that John does exactly that. John 20, 11 to 12. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And what sits in the middle, where the priest is supposed to sprinkle blood, what's laid there but Christ himself? You see it? And so what John is telling us is that the day of atonement has been fulfilled in Christ. He's brought us into this new garden, which is what John starts chapter 20 off. Not that he actually starts chapter 20, but where we distinguished it on the first day in the garden, right? That's what we've seen. John is in the garden. He's telling us, hey, we're in the garden on the first day, we've started a new creation. What should we see? We're in the garden. The garden and the temple are these things that are very, you know, compatible. They are overlapped on top of each other. That's what we're supposed to be thinking. And so John's like, hey, just to be clear, here it is. And the stones rolled away. In the same way, Matthew talks about the temple uh, veil ripping. John says, let me show it to you in this way. Look in and realize that the boundaries have been removed where the cherubim before were defending and saying, you can't come back in, these ones are saying, he's not here. Things have changed. We've been brought into something new. And so if we're continuing on this way, we should then see an ascent offering. And sure enough, John twenty seventeen, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So we come back to the beginning of John, and we see how John, from the very beginning, announces there is a new creation. There is something that's been announced, and we're going to see a lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so we see Jesus be both the Passover lamb who brings us back into the garden, and the goat of the Day of Atonement, who make us even allowed to be able to come into that garden. Without it, we can't. We can stand at the edge of the garden and look in, but you can't come in if you're not clean. And so the goat makes that possible. And so Jesus is the one who makes all of that possible. So if we close out on John here, John 20, 21 to 23, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So in the same way that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at the beginning, as he's announced that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, because we've been made to be allowed to come into God's presence, the Spirit can be given to us in the same way, but only because of what, what Jesus did. And so John's announcing from the very beginning, and he closes the same way he opens, announcing this fact that we've been brought into a new creation and that if the Spirit dwells in you, you are part of the new creation. So when we, we meditate 
And what does it mean then for to be to drink Christ's blood? Christ's blood washes you because you corporately, as Daryl talked about this morning, you corporately are the temple. It removes the taint of sin. You have been made fit for sacred space. Your sin has been taken away, and you have been made fit for sacred space.